Welcome to No Rain Date, a community podcast about local news and people. No Rain Date is a production of Saucon Source LLC. For more local news and information, please visit SaucinSource.com. Hello, No Rain Date listeners. Welcome to another news roundup from No Rain Date and Sock and Source. I'm Josh Pabachak, the publisher of Sock and Source and the host of No Rain Date. Here with the news headlines for the week ending August 7th, 2021. We published an important update on the Saucon Valley School Board race this week. There has been a bit of a shakeup in the race due to one candidate's withdrawal and the candidate who withdrew is quite well known to those of you in the community who have had kids in the district within the last 15 years. Sandra Miller has been a board member that entire time and certainly has had a say in many significant issues that have impacted the district since the mid 2000s. She issued a statement in which she said that she would be withdrawing her candidacy for re-election due to wanting to spend more time on issues related to equitable funding for public schools in Pennsylvania and also to spend more time with her own family. The replacement candidate for Sandra Miller is Robert Phillips, who has been a close watcher of the Saucon Valley school board and the district for about, I believe it's about a dozen years. He shared a news release with us, which goes into depth about his background and why he's deciding to throw his hat in the ring. In this case, sort of a last minute change up because the election is about three months away. There seemed to be a little confusion among several readers when we shared this story on Facebook, thinking that Robert Phillips was actually appointed to the school board to replace Sandra Miller. That's not the case. Sandra Miller withdrew her candidacy, so she will not be on the ballot in November. However, she will still be serving out the remainder of her term, which ends at the end of this year. Robert Phillips is replacing her on the ballot. He is not taking her seat effective immediately on the school board. So we did get that cleared up. You can read more about Robert Phillips and his qualifications in our story. Of course, there are a total of eight candidates running for four open seats on the school board. Saucon Valley School Board has nine members. It will be a pretty big election as far as local school board elections go, not just in Saucon Valley, but all throughout the Lehigh Valley and beyond because of COVID-19 and the impact it has had on schools in the past two years. Obviously, when we went to the polls to elect school board candidates in November 2019, nobody even knew what COVID-19 was, and that's less than two years ago. So a lot has changed in those two years. And of course, how COVID precautions have are being implemented in schools has become highly politicized. I don't think I need to tell anybody that, whether they have kids in school or not. There are are essentially two factions at this point, and they sort of align based on party lines with anti-mask and in some cases anti-vaccine parents aligning with Republicans and pro-mask or pro-vaccine parents aligning more with Democrats. That's probably an oversimplification in some cases, but it does hold true by and large. And so we're going to see things ramping up once we get past Labor Day. We're going to start to see all those lovely campaign signs and not just for school board, but for other important local races. So I encourage everybody to continue paying attention. We plan to do our best to cover uh, the most significant local races including Saucon Valley School Board, Southern Lehigh School Board, 
Lower Saucon Township Council and Hellertown Borough Council. We will be reaching out to candidates in those races to ask them some questions and some harder questions. Some of them will relate to COVID and if they are incumbents, how uh, they've responded in the past, what they think the situation is like now, and so forth. So, of course, we can't guarantee that uh, we'll receive cooperation, but we certainly hope that we will have everybody participate in those surveys because an informed voting public is really the best weapon against tyranny. I'm paraphrasing uh, one of the founding fathers there, I think, but it's so true. It was true 250 years ago, and it's more true than ever today. So you all lovely listeners have to do your part, and that involves staying tuned in. Don't tune the election out until November 7th and then think, oh, I need to figure out you know, who to vote for. I know a lot of people do that. It's a big mistake because you can't sort of cram for an election you know, the way you would cram for a quiz in school. It, the democracy doesn't work that way, and it shouldn't work that way. Ideally, everybody is paying attention all throughout the year. And I know it can be difficult because if you're not really interested in politics, it's difficult. The way that voting occurs in Pennsylvania, I know, is sometimes confusing to people, perhaps if they did not grow up as a regular voter or they relocated here from another state. I always stress, you know, the difference between the primary and the general election in Pennsylvania Anybody can vote in the general election. As an independent, you can vote, you should vote, and you can vote for any candidate. It's the primary that's a little trickier in Pennsylvania because it's a closed primary, so you only have Democratic and Republican candidates running in that primary, and then you have to be a registered Republican or Democrat to vote in the primary. If you're a Democrat, you're voting for the Democratic slate of primary candidates, Republican the same thing, Republican candidates. So, and then, you know, with once you factor in withdrawals and then sometimes there's a two-year term that uh, is on the ballot because somebody uh, didn't serve their full term in office, things can get a little bit murkier. We'll do our best to keep everything clear and concise for you. If you have questions, please let us know. But please, you know, be respectful you know, uh, if you don't understand something, there's no need to make assumptions that things are, are rigged or, you know, I know that conspiracy theories rule supreme anymore, but they really do a big disservice to everybody. And when they're spread, you're doing a disservice to your fellow voters. So please think carefully. Don't give in to that mindset on social media, especially that, you know, it's the other party that's that's doing something wrong in this case. I saw a number of comments on the story about Sandra Miller's withdrawal saying, this is fishy, this is, this is suspect. And I guess maybe that's partly human nature to think of, you know, last minute changes in the lineup for anything that way, but not everything is a conspiracy. And... <laughs> We certainly have to have evidence as journalists to report on anything that you think is fishy, and we don't usually have that. And so if you're reading those comments, please take them with a grain of salt. Uh, Of course, everybody has a right to express their opinion, but we are focused on the facts here at Sock and Source, always. In other news, I published a story which didn't get a lot of traction, but I thought it was significant. It was based on a news release put out by the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection, the DEP, about ticks. Obviously, every summer we're told to watch out for ticks, especially if you're heading out into the woods or a meadow, anywhere out in nature. Deer ticks are common in Pennsylvania, and they carry Lyme disease. Lyme disease can cause a wide variety of symptoms, especially if it's not caught early. The state is seeing a a spike in the number of deer tick nymphs this season. Actually, the number was double what it was last year. That's not good because it means more deer ticks, 
or deer ticks equals more Lyme disease, and that's what doctors are saying. They're, they're seeing more cases of tick bites and potential Lyme disease infections. You know, please be careful if you're heading out, doing hiking in the woods, or, you know, even in your own yard, depending on where you live, you may need to use some type of repellent. Of course, always check pets. They can contract Lyme disease too. We will continue to follow that story. I've also been trying to look into the West Nile virus so far this season. Haven't seen too much information about it. When COVID began, the state obviously shifted a lot of its health-related resources towards combating COVID, and I think West Nile virus sort of, you know, took a back seat. And that still seems to be the case because we don't have the news releases about positive test cases among mosquitoes, birds, and humans that we had just a couple years ago. I think that's important information. If we can get a hold of uh, updates from the state, we will. In the past, they would report on both county numbers and municipality positive testing. So we don't have anything as of right now, not that I can find online. We're coming into the height of the season for West Nile virus, which is usually August into September. So if you're near water, you know, especially standing water, don't mess around with those mosquitoes. They can they can transmit uh, not only West Nile virus, but other diseases too. And the same thing with ticks. In addition to Lyme disease, Powassan virus is transmitted by ticks and anaplasmosis, which can both be very serious. So bugs beware. In Hellertown news, we have a story that Johnny Hart wrote, a uh, follow-up of sorts about a project which is getting underway on Kickline Avenue. This is the development of a 28-unit mixed-use building. It's going to house residential and office commercial space. It's going to be a three-story building at the corner of Clouser Street and Kickline Avenue. It will be adjoined by a 56-unit parking lot. However, uh, some residents at the council meeting last week expressed dismay over the project. They also said that they were not kept well informed about it. I understand that the borough maintains that they kept, you know, the neighborhood informed and followed the letter of the law as far as public information goes. That typically means that notifications are sent to property owners within a certain radius. It depends somewhat on the use of the property and what type of variances, if any, are needed. However, uh, the borough also has to publish public notices in newspapers. This is becoming an issue, and it has been an issue for a number of years, the fact that these notifications, in order to satisfy the state's legal requirement for public notification, can only be published in print newspapers. Uh, the law that dictates this dates from 1976. Obviously, in 76, there was no internet, and people were really only getting their news from print media, radio, and TV. So, as a publisher, and I'm not alone in this, uh, I would like to see a more level playing field in which online publications, which do receive significant traffic, can satisfy the legal requirements that boroughs like Hellertown have for publishing things like meeting notifications and planning development-related announcements. We are a long way from that changing. The newspaper lobby remains very strong in Pennsylvania, so if you're listening to this and you support freeing the public notifications, in other words, allowing online publications, and I mean news publications, such as Sock and Source, to have a seat at the table, please let me know, and I would love to talk to you about that. Josh at SockandSource.com. We hope to get some legislative support for this change at some point. That would really help a lot. It will also benefit the community in terms of the cost, because the cost of publishing these announcements in print newspapers has gone up significantly in recent years. I can honestly tell you that 
publishing them online would, would cost a fraction of what it does to publish them in hard copy newspapers. Not that that is the only consideration, but it should be a consideration, especially when budgets are tight, and that is the case in some municipalities. But the main reason that they need to be freed is that not enough people see them anymore. Even if people do get a print newspaper, it may be buried in a section that they don't typically read, whereas online we can put them front and center. We can have a pop-up even to give people that they can't miss, that they can't miss it. If they're in the community, it would be more targeted. So I don't know if that was a factor in the case uh, regarding the Kickline Avenue development, but I definitely know that people have missed notices about other important public issues, uh, such as development-related issues in this area in the recent past. And unless the law has changed, that's going to continue to happen unfortunately. And we want everybody to be as aware of upcoming development as they can be. If you were a neighbor to a project that was going to significantly alter the landscape on your street, I'm sure you would want every resource used to notify you and your neighbors about it within reason. But right now we don't have that. So that's my little uh, soapbox speech for this news roundup. And as far as the Kickline Avenue project goes, as I said, it's getting underway. There were some homes in that block that have been demolished. I was up there the other week. There's a big hole in the ground now, surrounded by plastic fencing. Clearly, the work is beginning. So you will see that into the fall, I believe. There are some other projects happening in Hellertown, too, that we're looking into, and we hope to bring you exclusive reporting about those. Not all development is bad either. I understand the concerns that resident Diane Bachman raised about Kickline Avenue, specifically speeding cars and parking, the narrowness of the street. Those are obviously issues related to development and I hope that uh, the police will certainly monitor the situation that was promised by borough officials and that will be important in order to address speeding in that area. You do have families there living there, but fundamentally uh, this is part of the change that is coming to Hellertown. Land is in big demand in this town for residential and commercial purposes. So the remaining lots that are out there are being developed and there's not a lot that people can do to stop that as much as they might like to keep things exactly the way they are. It's not going to happen just because of the amount of pressure on the community. There is a housing shortage as well. The borough created a flexible use overlay zone that includes Kickline Avenue at the north end of Hellertown several years ago, in part because of these issues, wanting to allow for more responsive types of development to occur in that area, which has been somewhat economically depressed in the, in the past. So um, I think we're going to see property values really increase. Across the board, we're seeing that, but it's going to help that particular part of town as well. So as I said, it's not all bad. In Fountain Hill news, there were a couple of incidents along Broadway in Fountain Hill Borough this past week. One was an unusual incident that I personally witnessed never seen anything quite like it. Apparently, a woman uh, got into an argument with a Lanta bus driver at the corner of Broadway and South Bergen Street. And for whatever reason, she did not get on the bus, but she decided she wanted to disrupt the bus driver's route. So she started walking right in front of the bus east on Broadway. And so the bus driver could only travel about five miles an hour behind her. And Broadway is a major road in Fountain Hill, so before you knew it, there was like a line of 20 cars behind this bus getting longer and longer and longer. By the time the bus got about two blocks down to around Benner Street, where uh, Friedman's service station is, and that's where Broadway sort of bends to the left to go down towards Five Points, they were intercepted by a Fountain Hill police cruiser, so I'm assuming the bus driver radioed for help either directly to the police or 
through Lanta Communications. The police quickly dealt with that situation. I do not know uh, whether the woman was charged, but certainly it caused a bit of a commotion the other day in that neighborhood. And ironically enough, the same stretch of Broadway was again the subject of a police investigation on Sunday when there was an accident between South Bergen or South Hoffer rather and Banner Street. It was a Hyundai hatchback crashed into a PPL pole on the south side of the street. The pole was left leaning precariously into Broadway. The car was seriously smashed up. I came upon the accident scene maybe half an hour after it had occurred. Uh, the road was still closed, PPL was on the scene, and the car was being loaded onto a flatbed to be towed away. Hopefully nobody was seriously injured in that crash, but it is Music Fest week this week, and I hope that everybody will be driving defensively, driving safely in and around the Bethlehem area. Obviously, it's a time to have fun, and there will be a lot of activity in Bethlehem due to Music Fest, so plan accordingly, and everyone, please be safe as you're driving into and out of the city. In other Fountain Hill news, Johnny Hart wrote about a new borough official who was appointed recently to take over the role of borough manager. Eric Gratz comes to Fountain Hill from the city of Allentown, where he has been a director of EMS operations, and he will be replacing borough manager Tony Branco, who announced his retirement in the spring, but has stayed on as a temporary interim borough manager. Eric is going to take over officially in early September. We wish him well. There's a lot going on in Fountain Hill, uh, not a lot of development, compared to some other places, but of course, financial issues continue. He will have plenty on his plate and he will have some shoes to fill. So we're looking forward to working with him as we continue to cover Fountain Hill, which has sort of been a part of a news desert in recent years. As I call Fountain Hill home, I felt it was uh, important to restart some coverage of the area and I've enjoyed doing that and Johnny has really been doing a great job covering Borough Council so I hope you'll check out his articles. In business related news we covered the reopening of a very special restaurant in Northampton County this week, Hampton Winds, which is the teaching restaurant at Northampton Community College reopened to rave reviews. I got to be there on opening day. They had a ribbon cutting followed by a reception with past hors d'oeuvres and we got to tour the renovated kitchen which is beautiful. It features state-of-the-art uh, technology such as heat lamps that are actually extendable so you can raise and lower them to help control the temperature on food as it moves down the prep line. Of course, the food was delicious. They've also added an outdoor dining area and a to-go counter just outside the main entrance to Hampton Winds. If you've never been there, I recommend checking it out. Their hours uh, are somewhat seasonal based on the school year, but as I said, it's a teaching restaurant, and so all of Northampton's culinary arts program students go through Hampton Winds, and they learn everything about the restaurant business hands-on there. You'll also get to try some fantastic food if you dine there. And we have links to their social media, their website, reservation form, menus in our story about the reopening. They were closed, obviously, for COVID, but then the renovations extended the closure to nearly 18 months. So everybody was really excited and really positive about the reopening. And it looks beautiful, so wish everybody there well. And that's our news roundup for this week, and we wish everybody a fantastic week ahead. Here at Sock and Source, our mission is to provide information and make it as available as possible to the people in our community. A large part of that is a public service, and we're grateful for the support we have from local advertisers because that revenue helps keep the information flowing to you, our readers and listeners. 
Local news production does cost money, and that's why we've also introduced a voluntary membership option on Sock and Source, and we'd like to tell you a little more about that. Essentially, the membership is a recurring monthly contribution that shows your support for the work that we're doing. It helps guarantee that the information will remain free and accessible to you as well as to others in our community and it also helps fund our future growth. Sock and Source is growing and we're expanding our coverage area. The more support we receive from the community, the better coverage we can provide and the more useful the site will be to you. So that's why we would invite you to visit our membership page on the website sockandsource.com. You can do that by clicking on join under my sock and source which you'll see on the right side of your screen if you're on a desktop or at the bottom of any article page. You'll see several membership options including a monthly membership for $7, a four-month membership for $25, or a yearly membership for $70. These are strictly voluntary contribution levels and they're not any part of a paywall. There's no requirement to contribute, but we are grateful for those who have already done so and we hope that you will consider purchasing a membership in the future. Doing so is quick and easy. You can do it securely online and you can cancel at any time. Thank you again to all our current members and thank you for considering becoming a future member. This week on No Rain Date, I'm very pleased to welcome our special guest, who is somebody who has a passion for local history, as I do. She is the executive director of the Northampton County Historical and Genealogical Society, Megan Van Ravensway. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be here. Absolutely. As I said, as we were getting started, before we started recording, I've always been interested in local history and growing up in Bethlehem, that that includes uh, a lot of the county's history. And we're going to talk about uh, a specific program called Lehigh Valley Passport to History, which is being celebrated this month with a whole month of weekend programming. But before we do that, I wanted to talk to you, Megan, a little bit about your history and the history of the organization as well. How did Northampton County Historical and Genealogical Society begin and what is its mission and what brought you there? Well, Northampton County Historical and Genealogical Society was actually founded in 1906. Our mission is to share the stories of Northampton County's past to encourage personal reflection, community dialogue, and an understanding of history's impact on our lives. And that's a lot. That's a, that's a big mission statement, and it's certainly very optimistic. So what does that mean? The way we enact that is we pride ourselves on our partnerships with our fellow museums. And I know we're about to talk about the Passport to History program, which is a very exciting collaboration of over 40 partners that we work with um, in the museum industry. But we also partner with other nonprofits, like for example, the Children's Home in Easton is a very strong partner of ours, and certainly community groups like the Jewish community groups, NAACP, certainly our Lebanese groups, different groups that make up our communities here in Northampton County. And we truly believe that museums should be the living room of the community, a space where everybody can come, of course, enjoy the artwork and the beautiful furniture and textiles at the museum and explore history, but please engage in conversations. That's what we really are striving for. And we're actually a large organization. We own and operate three historic structures, the 1753 Bachman Public House, the Michael Illich House, and the Jacob Nicholas House. We also own a adorable and beautiful pocket park in downtown Easton called the Kressler Memorial Garden. And of course, our flagship site is the Sigel Museum on Hampton Street. And within the Sigel Museum is the Janus Muir Library and Archives. We offer field trips for K-12 students, walking tours, and of course, we're always out and about at something like the Easton Farmer's Market and all sorts of community events. We're likely to have a table there. And we're very excited coming soon. We're actually going to launch an app, so you'll be able to enjoy three new virtual tours from really anywhere in the world. 
you can explore Northampton County history. And as you mentioned, I serve as the executive director. I've worked in the Lehigh Valley's museum industry for the past 16 years. My academic background is in historic preservation and architectural history. And it's absolutely my honor to work with the team at NCHGS. Our board is incredible. Our volunteers are amazing. And our staff is just top-notch. I'm truly honored to work with everybody. And you asked what we're doing. Uh, We're so busy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just this fall, we have several activities going on. Our huge fundraiser, the Lehigh Valley Wine Auction, is coming up in September. We will be wrapping up a fundraising campaign to replace the roof of the 1753 Bachman Public House. And we're opening two new exhibitions. One includes a partnership with the Petrucci Family Foundation Collection of African American Art. And then we always have family and youth programming going on. In fact, we just opened a whole new room at the Smith Museum. It's a space called the Discovery Room. It's a hands-on space for kids to enjoy themselves. And it also houses the Easton Costing Kids Reading Room. Well, I love the fact that the Society's mission is broader i'm sure it's gotten broader over the years and you mentioned like the lebanese community in easton for example Mm -hmm. because years ago i think you know the history was sort of defined as the white colonial history and and i know Mm -hmm. that from my experience with historic bethlehem and certainly that has has broadened as well northampton county is such a a rich tapestry of different cultures that have been woven together over centuries it's really great that you're you're actively preserving that in so many different ways yes and thank you for for commenting on that it's a very special relationship we enjoy with these groups that their stories have been heard for a long time certainly using museums as an example so there's a lot of trust building You know, it's not easy to borrow somebody's mother's, you know, wedding dress. Mm -hmm. You know, you really have to build up a relationship there. We just opened a new exhibition at the Sigal Museum called Destination Northampton County. And it's a look at the communities that make up Northampton County in the last 50 years. That That was really challenging to go into our collection and find objects within the last 50 years to represent, for example, our Celtic community here in the Lehigh Valley. So it took a very long time to borrow those objects, to get those oral histories. But I hope you come to Sigal and visit it. It received two national level awards, one of which including an image award from the local NACP. It's a fantastic, fantastic exhibition. How often do, well, and and before I ask this question, I want to give a a shout out for the Sigal Museum because it's a beautiful facility. I remember covering its opening. I think I was working for Patch at the time. This was maybe about 10 years ago. Um, Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, it's it's just very well organized. It's a it's a modern facility, and it's also a great event venue. I've attended several special events there over the years. In terms of your exhibits, though, like how often do you change the exhibits, the rotating exhibits, because you have sort of permanent displays too, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, The lower level is that brand new permanent exhibition, Destination Northampton County, that actually just opened right before we closed for COVID, so very late 2019. Okay. Um, We anticipate that will be up for about 10 years, is is what you hope to get out of your permanent exhibition. Mm -hmm. Um, The first level and the second level, the decorative arts gallery and the early gallery presenting the story about the Lenape and the settlers going all the way to industry, that's right about at 10 years. So we will start taking a look at those permanent exhibition displays to flip them over. But the very large Shrin Gallery, which is changing exhibition space, that will have a new exhibition opening this November, that Petrucci Family Foundation collaboration exhibition. And it'll be up for about a year, probably about nine months, actually. Wow. Well, it's certainly a lot of work to prepare an exhibition, as you said, and the amount of research that goes into it, I'm sure, is 
hundreds if not thousands of hours so it makes sense that that they're that they're up for that long and and you want to get the maximum exposure for them and and so on i think there's a really neat dynamic also in the lehigh valley there's so much to see and do every weekend right Mm -hmm. so sometimes it feels like by the time you've heard of an exhibition taking place you know for example at the camera museum in Bethlehem might be near closing just because the weekends are so action-packed around here so we tend to aim at about a year so really truly allows locals to get in certainly any you know cultural tourists in the area to come and visit right right and northampton county is a big area too i think i think we forget that especially living down in the southern tip sort of 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 northampton county where i am hellertown but if you you know huge parts of the county are up north and almost like an hour away from here so um, yeah it's a lot of it's a lot of geography behind that history so that makes for a lot of preservation work as far as the passport to history program can you tell us a little bit more about how that originated and how the collaboration evolved Absolutely. I am extremely proud of this program. It's actually a partnership of, at this point, we have 41 partners, and it's, it goes on year-round. We're meeting almost monthly. We host activities, events. We have our gorgeous website, but we have this major event called Passport to History Month. So the group itself was formed over a decade ago at this point, and I'm proud to say I was one of the founding members of it over a decade ago, but it was really revitalized in 2018 when the County of Northampton's Hotel Tax Grant Program gave some money towards the, towards the Passport to History group. So the group really gained a lot of strength and momentum with that infusion of funds over the last three to four years. So today we are over 41 area historical sites and museums in the region. And initially, we came together just to create a website, which I hope you go and visit. It's lvhistory.org. And why that was created was so we could all share our programs, our activities, our contact information, and our events with the public. We then hired a marketing consultant to manage all of our PR, and they also manage our four social media channels. And, of course, they do the arranging for the Passport to History Month activities and the Passport to History Month is this August. Each weekend, certain partners will be open and host certain events and programs for the public. Most of us are able to offer free admission, but a couple have a small charge just to cover some expenses. But truly, you know, we need to thank the County of Northampton, the County of Lehigh, and we have two corporate sponsors that help us pull this off, Freebridge Realty and Kretzer Wolf and Miller Insurance Company in the East End are supporting the program, and we're so grateful to them. Fantastic. Yeah, we, we always appreciate the business sponsors. Certainly, I would say that, you know, even if a program is free at a historical site, I'm sure the, the donations are always appreciated if you visit, because it does cost a lot of money, not only to have these special events, but the preservation of these buildings you mentioned the the roof for the Bachman public house it's not like the cost of replacing the roof on your house you know (laughs) if only right it's over a hundred thousand just to replace the roof wow because it's probably slate and it has to be cut a certain way and yeah I mean yeah yeah I can't go to Lowe's that's for sure (laughs) Right, and that's just one project. Um, when you have a historic site, you're sort of always planning, you know, five years out, ten years out for things that, that need to be done. Mm-hmm. So that's my little plug for voluntarily contributing when you visit one of these sites, if you can. As far as the 41 member organizations go, how did they opt in, so to speak, to be a part of this partnership where all of the Lehigh Valley historical societies and museums approached at some point? A great question. We we try to do that. Everyone is invited. It is total open door. We have done our darndest to try to reach out to people and also 
encourage word of mouth, but if there's a historical site or a museum listening in that want to join, just please head over to lvhistory.org, and we have some contact information at the bottom there where you can reach out, and our marketing consultant will get back to you and just ask you to fill out a quick form and give us some information about you, but it's free to join. So partners do not pay to be part of the the partnership. Again, that's why we thank our county support and our and our private sponsor and our donor support. But certainly everybody can be a part of it. They just need to reach out and we're happy to sign them up. We love as many historic sites as partners as, as partners because they're strength in numbers, right? So the more we can band together, the more attention we can get from the press when we're doing things, we can hop in together on grant applications. And we can really help leverage our word of mouth. Again, we meet monthly, and we talk about everything. We're talking about, you know, especially during COVID, we were having some very deep discussions on, okay, what are you guys doing? Are you doing hand sanitizer? Are you closing? Like, it's Mm -hmm. been a great resource for us to have each other. Right. That's a great point. And, And certainly museums were seriously impacted by the restrictions that were put in place during COVID because they are indoor spaces, because they can draw a lot of people together in a in a small area. They were regulated. So there was strength in numbers at that point. And I think, like you said, there's strength in numbers as far as the marketing goes. Many historic sites I know don't really have a budget for advertising, marketing, website maintenance. So think of it as, you know, an opportunity to sort of get your name out there without the expense. Uh, If Mm -hmm. you're somebody from one of those societies or or organizations that's listening in. And there are are many, uh, we talked about this a little bit before we started recording. Um, I have no idea how many in the Lehigh Valley, but I'm sure it's well over 41 historic organizations. And many of them go back many years. They have incredible Mm -hmm. histories of their own. You know, Mm -hmm. they don't wanna, you know, sort of just lumped together with you know some other town or some other museum but you don't have to do that by joining the passport to history right you can just sort of be independent but um oh yeah reap the rewards absolutely and that's literally what this is for you know and we have to your point we have some very small organizations with just one and two volunteers. Hmm. It might be a historic little cemetery tucked away, but by being able to put their information on this website, people can find them. And that was our point. We wanted the cultural tourists, you know, we were imagining somebody in Philly and, okay, you're gonna come up and visit the Lehigh Valley. How do they quickly see our information, including a map, and how close are we to each other. So if you're into the Rev War, for example, you can go see our Rev War itinerary guide, and you can see all the different Rev War-related sites. And, you know, a huge shout-out to our friends over at Discover Lehigh Valley for supporting that. And we do hook over onto Discover Lehigh Valley's website because we also want people to go to restaurants and spend the night at hotels and go shop at the cute little boutique, you know, in Bath. So we really want people to explore the Lehigh Valley while they're exploring history, too. Right. Yeah, that's that's a great point. When you plan your history outing, you can easily, with Discover Lehigh Valley or, you know, maybe with your new app, you can plan, you know, to eat at a nearby restaurant. I'm thinking of, of Northampton Street. The Easton Public Market, which is awesome, is really close to the Sigel Museum. So yeah. you, know, you could combine those two things and make it an afternoon of it. And I'd like to do that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, please join us. My staff jokes that all my paychecks go directly to Mr. Lee's Noodles because <laughs> I am always eating ramen across the street. It's my vice, but it is delicious. Yeah, I've heard great things about them. The whole market is is a great concept there, and so glad to see it prospering. In terms of this month, which is, as you said, is Lehigh Valley Passport to History Month, I was looking at the the schedule, and it's extensive. (laughs) How does somebody go about making a plan? You know, say it's a family and they have children. Obviously, kids have, you know, limited attention spans. 
so do some adults <laughs> to be fair <laughs> but um but but they may just want to you know find like kid friendly you know things or or sites like can they do that through the website Absolutely. So to your point, please hop over to lvhistory.org where the full inventory of activities is listed. I think our web designer did a remarkable job by clearly laying out the weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, when you when you click the link of the weekend, you're going to see a listing of all the different activities and you're going to see a map. So you can see exactly where that location is. And we even have, you know, little driving routes to get to the next site. But there's a ton. Every single day, there's something for kids specifically. And certainly for the individual adult that just needs to get out of the house, there's something there for everybody. But each weekend, we put something going on for families and children. And that's, you know, everything from tours of like behind the scenes tours of a historic site to hand attractions, crafts, games, scavenger hunts and community and a community picnic. But like all my girlfriends with kids are ready to get out of the house, eager for something for them to do. And this is the perfect month to do it. And again, most of these are free, if not a very, very small cost. And whatever you are paying goes right back to maintaining that historic structure. So it's kind of a feel-good, feel-good experience. Mm-hmm. Right. Just to throw a few names out there, I'll, I'll read off, you know, from Weekend One. You have the George Taylor House on Saturday. That's in Catasauqua. You have the National Canal Museum on Saturday. That's in Easton or the Easton mm-hmm. area. And we've had them on No Rain Date to talk about, well, actually it was the Delaware and Lehigh River National Corridor, National Heritage mm-hmm. Corridor, um, but that encompasses the Canal Museum, Schwankfelder Library and Heritage Center, Northampton Area Historical and Genealogical Society, Number 9 Coal Mine and Museum, that sounds really cool. Is that like actually an underground mine or? Yeah, yeah, you can get, you can go on a tour. I'd like to do that. It'd probably be nice and cool down there, too. <laughs> um, so just I just wanted to give people sort of a, a sense of, of the breadth of, you know, the organizations. And that's just a few of them. So definitely visit lvhistory.org backslash Passport to History Month to get the full list and all the details because this is through the end of August. I wanted to talk sort of generally you know about about history and and get your your take on this question which I think about a lot because I was a a history major and I'm kind of a history nerd and you know I'm always trying to promote history and writing about local history and people like their eyes sort of like glaze over when you know you, you say history sometimes like oh boy this is going to be yeah. boring you know but it doesn't have to be boring and I'm you know seeing you know the efforts that you're undertaking as combating that stereotype is that sort of something that factors into you know a lot of the planning you do and and the programming absolutely especially now and I think you're hitting on some deep discussions that are taking place in the museum industry. I think there really is wisdom in meeting your guests where they are. You know, to your exact point, some people are super interested and they're coming to our library to do genealogical research because they need to find grandma times three, right? <laughs> so you, you know how to take care of that person. But for example, when we're at the farmer's market, and we're just trying to get our name out there and, you know, do maybe a hands-on activity, people will come up to you and you have to really gauge on where they're at. But I think the strength is we offer something for everybody. So we've got something for that individual guest that they had too many noodles at Mr. Lee's and they just need a place to cool off for a couple hours, right? Mm-hmm. Or somebody needs, you know, something for Christmas, come into our museum store and purchase it. But truly, you know, mom, she needs something. Dad needs something, you know, to entertain the kids for a few hours. So I think 
the wise organizations are truly gauging themselves with what they're offering to the public. But certainly, I think people who are not yet connected to history don't know how cool it is. But it's truly the historic sites and museums presenting the historic materials that can make history come alive. Mm-hmm. You know, like you might have somebody slightly interested in like military history, for example, but not until you actually go to Gettysburg and you stand out in those open fields and you're like, holy cow, there were young boys with bullets whizzing past their heads right here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you might love Hemingway, but until you go to Key West and go to his home and see where he was writing, then he becomes alive again, right? So mm-hmm. that's truly what we're all trying to just do is meet people where they are, but it's life. Like, it can't just be a teapot on a shelf. You really have <laughs> to bring it to life. But that's the fun part about our job. That's when you're enjoying a good museum, right? Right. When you're truly engaging with it and not just, you know, looking at one painting and then the next and then you forgot what you saw 10 seconds ago. Right. Uh, so, so true. And I also think that, you know, maybe part of the reason people aren't as connected to history is because people aren't as connected to the area that they yeah. live in anymore. I mean, years ago, almost everybody in the Lehigh Valley was born here, grew up here, and, you know, that sort of roots you or connects you directly to the past. But, you know, you have to appeal to somebody who's like an eighth generation Estonian, Mm -hmm. and then the next person just moved here last week and doesn't know anything about the history of Easton. That's That's not easy to do. It's not, but I tell you, it always just starts with the warm welcome in, mm-hmm. right? You know, I, I think that's the biggest thing that we're all trying to fight is, is, you know, museums should not be these quiet, you know, staid organizations. There should be kids making noise. There should be activities, you know, taking place. You spoke about the fun events you've been at. At Sigel, there should be mm-hmm. things going on in that museum. It should be open late on Fridays, right? So but I think it all starts with us not taking ourselves as seriously as museums have in the past and, you know, looking down our nose at people and, oh, shush, kid, you shouldn't be loud in the galleries. No, this is, again, it's going back to that idea that this is the living room for the community. We want you to come in. They want you to experience and make memories in galleries on tours. And, and, you know, if you want to rent the gallery for your, your wedding rehearsal, please do. You know, I, there's, I think there's many ways for museums to connect to the community. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's just a, a lot of awareness raising. And I think a lot of the stereotypes about museums come from like tv and movies but also i mean Mm -hmm. i can remember as a kid going to a lot of the big museums like in new york and you know they have guards everywhere and Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) it's not exactly the friendliest atmosphere you know of course they're there for a reason but i'd almost rather go to you know just a very modest museum and not have the guards and you know be able to be a little more relaxed because it's hard to process what you're seeing when you're you know sort of scared <laughs> absolutely yeah it can be a very intimidating environment if if you didn't grow up with museums or weren't exposed to them to your point it can be very intimidating because the whole thing you know is don't touch anything <laughs> right right Right. So, again, it's, it's truly the onus is on museums to warmly welcome everybody to the museum, but then there's a lot of onus on us to make sure when that, to your point, when that brand new resident of Northampton County who just moved here from, you know, Cabo San Lucas, Mexico, what mm-hmm. are they going to relate to at the Sigel Museum? So we truly need to keep refreshing our exhibition keep refreshing our programming so they see themselves on the walls at the museum and they're comfortable asking questions, right? So, I mean, I, I don't mean to keep tooting the horn at the sigil, but if you come by, you are likely to run into me, our director of operations, or the curator walking around in the gallery checking on you. 
seeing if you have any questions and what we can do to help you with your visit. So we, mm-hmm. we're working really hard to be approachable. And I know my, my fellow partners in Passport to History are, are really working hard to do the same. You mentioned earlier COVID and, and well, you touched on that and some of the challenges that went along with that. I imagine that one of the challenges was the fact that it, you know, limited access just at a time when, you know, you're trying to, you know, expand access. Well, that's all the time. But, you know, I'm thinking of like the Please Please Touch Museum. I was thinking, did they have to call it the Please Don't Touch Museum, you know, for a while? (laughs) Because (laughs) literally, I mean, you don't want people touching things in a pandemic. You know, I'm sure that was, was challenging. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, it was it was pretty darn wild, and you know, I my career has been long enough that I experienced the museum industry when the towers went down on nine eleven. I experienced mm-hmm. the marketing pop in you know the real estate market pop in two thousand eight. Right. Um, that was an extremely difficult time in the local museum industry, but of course, nothing compares to. COVID-19. It was just a lot of uncertainty. You know, we, we knew, you know, we closed our doors as fast as we could. And to your point, we pulled all of our, you know, hands-on exhibitions and put them in deep storage. But there was a lot of, like, like awkward confusion. Like, we have an elevator. And, you know, we knew we would reopen again. But with our elevator, when we did reopen... We bought the most, you know, crazy cleaner you could possibly get your hands on. And then it eroded all of our elevator buttons, and we had to pay thousands of dollars oh to fix gosh. that, you know. So right. just really simple things in our ignorance in the early days that we didn't know what to do. But, you know, the team was amazing. We threw up plexiglass dividers at the front desk. We did time tickets. You know, we, uh, and we didn't, we did online where you bought your tickets online, so you didn't have to exchange cash. We have hand sanitizers still, of course, everywhere, but it was just a lot of unknowns. Gratefully, the front admission of a museum doesn't tend to be a significant amount towards its income. You know, it, it's not a huge amount. When we mm-hmm. had to close for under a year, it, it was a hit, but it wasn't a huge, scary hit. The big scary hits are when you can't do your big fundraisers in your big drives, like your appeals. Because at the same time, we also felt like, gosh, maybe people should be giving to the hospitals instead of us right now, you know? So if, uh-huh. if you engaged with us at the first part of the, of the pandemic, we actually took a back seat. And we didn't do some of our normal fundraisings, and we weren't loud about it because we truly felt that, you know, the doctors and the nurses, you know, needed money for PPE. We didn't need it. We could be closed for a couple months. So, you know, it was just a lot of confusion, but we were certainly paying attention to all the governor's orders. And again, to toot the horn for the Passport to History group, we really felt a lot of comfort knowing what everybody else was doing. So we weren't the only ones, you know, closed or what have you. Mm-hmm. And when we did restart and open, we all kind of opened around the same time and in the same way. Right. You're yeah. absolutely right. There was a lot of confusion and, and there was changing guidance, which obviously contributed to that. I think everybody was doing the best that they could with the information yeah. that they had at the time. But like you said, it, the best of intentions can, can cause physical damage in some cases to well thankfully it was just the elevator not <laughs> priceless artifacts <laughs> yeah. no we wouldn't spray artifacts <laughs> right right um yeah the, the elevator buttons can be replaced but yeah you, you don't know in in those circumstances exactly what to do so everybody was looking for for guidance and we've learned a lot i think i hope yeah absolutely yeah, we certainly as a team, we we grouped together. I feel like, you know, the team in place, we could get through anything at this point. Because, again, the, the safety of our guests, the safety of the, the structures and our collection and our staff is paramount. So I'm grateful that, you know, we, we had funds and we had the board support to, to close when we needed to. 
just to, to get that, that additional bits of information and figure out what we were going to do next. But it was not a fun time, that's for sure. I don't want to do it again. <laughs> no, no. I, I, I understand that. As far as the future goes, though, do you think that, and not just for, for the Northampton County Historical and Genealogical Society, but, but in general across museums, that you know, more online programming is here to stay, maybe more outdoor-type exhibitions that, you know, obviously you can't put, like, paintings and things like that outside, but you can have displays of photos or, or whatnot. Do you think those things are going to be more popular in the future because of the pandemic? Yeah, I think you're hitting on a really cool question, and I don't think anybody knows the answer quite yet. You know, I think museums and historic sites are in the exact place that other businesses are in. You know, we provide mm-hmm. a service to this ever-changing audience who always wants the next new thing, right? So, to your point, like, we have to evolve in our interpretation, our marketing, our fundraising, and our planning in order to stay relevant. And the forward-looking museums and historic sites are absolutely recognized that our community has changed radically after the pandemic. You know, to guess one, it feels safe because, to your point, you know, we, we are indoor closed spaces. You know, we know half of our guests are ready to come back, but the mm-hmm. other half are definitely not. We're being told we should expect our local guests unusual because some folks aren't ready to fly or or you know at a hotel yet and they definitely want to see what we're doing you know what evidence of our of our care of our planning and our implementation of like precautions to keep them safe so you know like those hand sanitizers that we have everywhere but at the same time i think we really need to remember that we as a society witness such a devastating period of economic health social and political unrest so I don't, I don't, I don't think we know our audience again yet, mm-hmm. because our audience, we have changed, right? The staff, we've changed radically. You know, I think we all reassessed how we want to spend our time and who we're spending it with. And I think our guests and we are looking for deeper topics to explore. You know, topics that are more relevant, topics that share unheard stories from typically unheard communities, but. You know, it's been a sincere challenge to stay in the forefront of everybody's minds during this difficult time. But again, the banding together, learning from each other, you know, providing experiences like Passport to History Month, we we love it because we get to engage with the public. But you better believe we each are going to be asking our guests questions like this. You know, hey, are you guys heard of the Zoom yet? <laughs> mm-hmm. Or do you want stuff in person? So I think... I think it's time to walk the walk where we're saying we're here for the community. Well, we need to find out what the community wants right now. Uh, Because I can tell you, I'm sick of being on the computer all day. Right. So, yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. But to sort of try to answer your question, I I think we're learning. But communication, clear, open communication with our audience is going to be key to finding out what they want. Well, there's there's certainly channels for that many more than before and that kind of leads me into my final question which is you know how can our listeners connect with you whether they just want to follow you on social media or get a newsletter or maybe they have questions you know about their family history research that they're doing what are all the ways that they can follow you connect with you online and in person Absolutely. Well, I will take that from the two approaches, you know, how to connect with the Passport to History group, and certainly however we can help you at Northampton County Historical and Genealogical Society. So in the first place, Passport to History has a website, so that's lvhistory.org. So please visit that. There's a Contact Us button. You can see everything going on. On that website, it's also the links out to Passport to History social media channels. So we're on LinkedIn, we're on Facebook as Lehigh Valley Passport to History, we're on YouTube, and we're on Instagram at at LV Passport to History. And then NCHGS, we also have a website. It's nchgspa.org. 
we have an Instagram, we have a Facebook page at Sigal Museum, S-I-G-A-L. And please, you know, I personally would love to warmly welcome everybody to become active with us. Drop by, come see us, come into our museum store, come for a tour, and certainly become a member of the museum. That's, you know, for a small cost, you're going to hear about everything first and get invited to some really cool openings this fall. And a surprise to you, Josh, we wanted to do a special offer to your listeners. So the month of August, anybody who comes into the museum will give you free admission for two adults if you just mention No Rain Date podcast to our front desk team members. We will get you free admission for two adults. Thank you so much. That's very thoughtful of you to offer that, and, and I hope our listeners will take advantage of that. Like you said, it's summertime. The kids are maybe getting restless and, you know, <laughs> and it's a hot day. So, you know, take advantage of the air conditioning and make it an educational outing. You know, not, not every day has to be the pool. So <laughs> <laughs> as fun as that is. But thank you, seriously. And, and definitely, I hope our listeners will consider memberships, too, uh, because you do have a lot of cool events and the financial support will help grow the museums and preserve our history in the future. So thank you, Megan. I really appreciate this, and I've learned a lot. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been an absolute pleasure, and I hope to see some of your listeners soon. And Josh, you better come in too soon. (laughs) I absolutely will. It's been too long. I think it's been... Well, it's been at least two years because of the pandemic since I've been over yeah. there. So yeah, I would, I would love to do that and I'll do it soon. We've been recording No Rain Date since late 2019 and we've produced a fair number of episodes at this point. We would love to hear your feedback about what we're doing. What makes you tune in every week? What ideas do you have for interview guests? Is there something that you think the podcast is missing? Feel free to share your thoughts, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent with us. You can do that by emailing josh at josh at com. No Rain Date is a local news and information podcast, and we focus on the Saucon Valley. However, our guests are from the Lehigh Valley and beyond. So please try and keep that in the back of your mind when you're thinking about ideas for future episodes. Thank you. No Rain Date is an original production of Sock and Source, LLC. Our theme music is provided by This Way to the Egress. For more great music by them, be sure to follow This Way to the Egress on Spotify. Thank you for listening. Thank you.